Joshua chapter three, starting in verse one. Ready? It says in verse one, it says, then Joshua rose early in the morning and they set out from Shittim and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel and lodged there before they passed over. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then, you'll show, uh, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. We'll just stop right there. This is God's word. Heavenly Father, we just want to come before you in Jesus' name and ask for a, a deep sense of awe to come upon your church. The way that we see in in some of these historical narratives where you would do something and millions of Israelites would be would be blown away. The nations would, would tremble, they'd melt like wax. God, we just pray that in our church today and 2016 in the middle of Santa Barbara, you would restore a sense of wonder in our hearts today and a sense of awe. We pray that you would show us a glimpse of your glory and your power and that we too would fall to our knees. Even as we sang in that song earlier, your glory came like a cloud, the priests couldn't even stand. I pray that you would stop us cold today and that we would behold the glory of the King. If there's anything else that you want to do in us, we, we submit to the leading of your Holy Spirit. We ask that you would do that and that you, in doing so, would testify as the, the Gospel of John says that you testify of Jesus Christ and we pray that out of this, all that happens, the wonder and the awe, the brokenness and the grief. And we pray that out of it would emerge a testimony of Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would lay down our arms, our weapons, so to speak, our hearts, even our bodies, and fall before you in worship. For you are the name above all names at whose name every knee will bow and every tongue confess that you are Lord. We just want to gather today, Lord, around your word to declare ahead of time, you are Lord. Be Lord over us today as we study your word and change us from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little background on where we were. Joshua is the continuation of a lot of other books, right? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy forms a unit. We could call that, that the book of Moses or the books of Moses, which is a journey uh, 
with the people of Israel by which God, if you had to boil down the first five books of the Bible to one thing, it would be God enacting his promised kingdom to one man and his family, Abraham. And so the rest of those books is the journey, the process of that promise being realized. And the promise we talked about uh, last week and the week before is really three things, right? It's a lot of people in a special place under God's blessing and his rule. That was the promise that God gave to Abraham all the way back in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, I believe. The promise to Abraham that is the, the vision of God's kingdom starting with one little family and expanding to the, to the, to the world. And so what you see in those books is the, the promise of God's kingdom to Abraham and the slow, tumultuous realization of that promise and all of the setbacks that come with it. And so by the time you're done reading Deuteronomy uh, and all, all of the preceding books, you're left with this longing because after Deuteronomy is over and Moses dies, you look at the promise of God to Israel and to God's people and you see that two of them are answered. There's a lot of people. And uh, they live under the rule of God. And so there's two, there's two components to that blessing that are there. The only thing that's missing at that time is the place. They have no place. They're refugees. They're exiles. Uh, They have no land to belong to. And so uh, the books of Moses end with this unfulfilled taste in the mouth, right? And that's where Joshua picks it up. And Joshua immediately starts, as we studied a few weeks ago, Moses died, here's a new transition, uh, transition and a new season where God is now going to bring to fulfillment the rest of his promise because that's what God does. I don't know if you know that. God finishes what he starts and he aims to keep all of his promises. It's the process in between all of that that people get caught up in and that's where we find ourselves in in Joshua That's why we're calling it Stepping into God's Promises. And in Joshua chapter three, we are literally on the verge of stepping into promises as the people of God are facing what looks to be a giant obstacle in their path. And if I could couch this in, if I could couch this entire chapter in one sentence, it would be the process of waiting. You ever feel like you're waiting for something important? Might be the DMV or the grocery store, might be something menial. It also might be something really important. Like uh, my my four-year-old daughter, Abby, everything in her life is immediate, pressing, urgent, and important. Everything. Uh, Actually, yesterday, Brianna went out, we were all in the house just hanging out, and Brianna snuck out of the house to go for a walk by herself. She likes to walk around town, go downtown, just walk, do these loops. And she did that, snuck out of the door, didn't say bye. And I'm just sitting there on the couch, and Abby's just sitting there doing her thing. She does this. She's like, Dad, where's Mom? Mom's been gone for a long time. What do you think she's doing? I look at her, and I say, oh, she's, you know, she went for a walk. She... She looks down, she kind of furls her brow a little bit, she's thinking really deeply, and she's like, she doesn't go anywhere when she takes a walk. She just walks, like what is she doing? And she keeps repeating this phrase, she's taking a long time. And whether it's Brianna going for a walk, or it's, you know, a microwave dinner that takes like 30 seconds to make, or literally anything that's rather quick for a child, everything for her right now is, it's taking a long time. 
It's taking a long time. I have to go to the bathroom. It's taking a long time. We're in the car. It's taking a long time. Where are we going? It's been like 10 hours. Where are we going? We're going to Costco. It's 10 minutes away, you know? It's taking a long time. Everything for her right now is it's taking a long time. And it's comical for Brianna and I because usually in those instances, we're not gone for very long. And what we're uh, maybe getting for her in that moment doesn't take very long. But in her small little perspective, it's taking a long time. That seems to be what Joshua chapter 3 is, is God's perspective with his people who think that things are taking a long time. Um, if I can kind of couch that in three points, uh, I'd say Joshua 3 is about three things. It's when God makes us wait, how to wait on God, and what happens when we do. That's what we're going to talk about right now, when God makes us wait. Look at verse 1 with me one more time. It says, then Joshua rose early in the morning and set out from Shittim, and they came to Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. Immediately out of the gate, it's almost humorous that at this point there has been a long waiting period for God to move mightily on their behalf. We want the promised land, and it's just right there, and God Starting off, just starting off in the first verse of Joshua chapter 3, doesn't take them there. It's almost humorous that after all the hype of crossing over, you remember the first nine verses of chapter 1, God's big introduction to the promised land. I will be with you, be strong and courageous, no one will be able to stand before you. We're going to do this thing. There's all of this, this courageous hype just being built up, this anticipation and expectancy, and it's almost Humorous how chapter three starts off. After all the hype of the the promise of crossing over, they end up lodging right in front of the Jordan River. God tells them to lodge right in front of the very insurmountable problem that they have been faced with this entire time. And not just for a moment. You know, for for them, this is the insurmountable problem keeping them from their destiny. God says basically to them, you know, I just want you to camp right in front of it. And not just for a few minutes, but we're told in verse 2 that they ended up staying there for three days. I want you to imagine this for a moment. Even in your own life, God, I have this huge problem. I have this huge opportunity, and I need you to move right now. I have like a five-minute plan, and I need you to get on my plan, God. I have this giant problem, and I need you to do this, this. I've got it all figured out for you, bro. Like, you just do this, 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 and if you could keep it to about 35 minutes, I'll be set. Imagine God, and perhaps he's been doing this to you already, he just sits you in the middle of the problem for days. And you can imagine millions of Israelites right now camping in front of that very thing, keeping them from their destiny by the will of God. He has them sitting there day in and day out. And you could just imagine just getting into their heads. The first day, they're probably excited, like, yeah, yeah. Scoping out the land. There's the obstacle. God's going to do something. This is great. Day two, they're just making s'mores by the fire. Like, oh, yeah. Maybe go for a swim. By day three, you can imagine, they're just skipping rocks across it. Just, gosh, why are we here? Should have stayed in Egypt. (laughs) Should have stayed in Egypt. God sometimes makes people face their problems. We can't let this escape us, that God moves the river. He will move the river for them. 
He will part the river in a miraculous display of his power. But before he does that, he makes them camp out in front of it. Sometimes God will do that to you and me. He will make us face our problems, not just face them, but sit with them for a prolonged period of time, perhaps to remind us of the magnitude of the problem and the weakness of our own effort. You can imagine by day three a sense of utter despair and helplessness curling up in the hearts of some of God's people. Like, how are we ever going to? How are we ever going to cross this? And yet with God, all things are possible. Perhaps God sometimes causes us to face our problems squarely, even to stare at them for a while, to remind us that he's the only person who can part rivers in our midst. And in those moments, it's important that we don't get ahead of God. And I think this is what is being said in verses two through three. Listen to this. At the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, as soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priests, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. As soon as you see the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord in your midst, being carried out in your midst, then you shall set out from your place and follow it. Uh, you, maybe your only connotation or perception of an ark is from what you've seen in Indiana Jones movies, just this like magic box that kills people. Um, that's also true in the Bible, that's in there. But it's more than that. The ark, and you see throughout the Bible, uh, God, who's too big to dwell anywhere, right? He, he's, not, he's not the size of a box. In fact, uh, Solomon would later in 1 Kings chapter 8 building what would be the biggest physical home that God has ever had on the earth, the the, uh, Temple of Solomon. He would later pray in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 27, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heavens cannot contain God, how much less this, this little house that I made for you. Yet, have regard to the prayer of your servant and his plea. And so you see, throughout the Old Testament specifically, uh, God uh, dwelling in specific ways in these little places for the purpose of his people. Uh, the first one was an ark. There's also a tabernacle. Later it would be uh, a more permanent dwelling place, the temples. Uh, when Jesus came by the power of the Holy Spirit, he now dwells in individual people who call on his name and also in the gathering of his people. But in this place, in Joshua's time, he dwelt in the ark. And so, very important, the ark stood for God's manifest presence. It always symbolized, when you saw it, when you were in Israel, you saw the ark, you saw a, a symbol of God's tangible, palpable presence. And nowhere in Joshua do we see the ark. We don't see it mentioned, but in chapter 3 and chapter 4, it's mentioned 17 times in two chapters. In other words, there's a big emphasis in here. The author of Joshua is trying to impart this knowledge. There's something when you're in a situation like this, when you're in a place, uh, uh, uncharted territory, when you're facing an insurmountable object, there's something about God's presence that I want you to know and understand. And that thing that he seems to want us to know and understand, as we see in verse four, is that his presence must go before us. God's people must be people who follow 
his presence, who truly don't do much of anything apart from a dependency and an awareness of God's presence. Look at verse four. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it. So now the uh, officers, are sa- God is saying this to God's people and the officers as they're organizing all of this, about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it in order that you may know the way that you shall go for you have not passed this way before. So 2,000 cubits, you know, for Americans, we don't really understand, like we don't do the metric system or the ancient Near Eastern system of cubits. Uh, we like miles, so this is like a half a mile, okay? This is about 3,000 feet, so a little, little over half a mile. God is saying, I want you to trail me by half a mile. <laughs> That's awesome. And looking at the rest of the things that he's saying in verse four, don't come near it so that you know the way that you're supposed to go. You've never been this way. I want you to trail back enough. It's almost, it seems like he's saying this so that, that that giant body of people, all of them will have that ark in their sight. A half a mile will, will be about enough for a million people to see it moving. Very important, apparently, for God's people to see God's presence, to sense God's presence, to know God's presence, and not just God's presence in the background as like a periphery, but as that thing which leads them. The church is led by the spirit and presence of God. God's people must be led by his presence. Apart from his presence, we're doomed. In fact, I love the line that Moses would say. I think it was in Exodus when he was on Sinai. He said, God, if, you're, if you don't go with us with your presence, don't, don't even lead us from this place. Don't even tell us to do anything. Don't tell us to go anywhere if your presence is not there. This should be the longing in God's people. That sense of longing and craving that truly we were made for God's presence. Why would we do anything apart from God's presence? So Israel, straying behind, uh, staying behind, not straying, staying behind about half a mile behind God as they journeyed. Book of Joshua, the author seems to be telling us that we don't do anything without him. His presence is everything. And when we reach uncharted territory, we ought not get ahead of God, but we ought to wait on him. This is what happens when God makes us wait. Now, waiting is kind of a spiritual discipline, right? When I say waiting, I'm not saying just sitting around doing nothing. Like, okay, God, you're gonna do your thing, I'm gonna do my thing. Actually, I'm gonna do no thing. I'm just gonna sit here and wait until you do your thing. Waiting is more than just not doing anything, at least in uh, biblical language. It's more of a spiritual discipline. It's a posture of the heart towards God. To wait on the Lord refers to a posture within you the way that you perceive him, the way that your heart is set up uh, towards him. And I think we see that in uh, verses five through 13. A few things, I think what we see, uh, how to wait on God, are three things. One, a desperation. Two, an expectancy. And three, a devotion. I think that's right here starting in verse five. I'll just read all of it and we'll just talk about it for a few minutes. But it says in verse five, right, they're all waiting. They've been camping out for three days. There might be a a small drop in in team morale. Joshua comes up and he says in verse five, says to the people, consecrate yourselves. For tomorrow, the Lord 
will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priests, take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in all the sight of Israel that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant, when you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. Get your feet wet. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, verse 10, here is how you shall know that the living God is among you and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Girgashites, and the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now therefore, take 12 men from the tribes of Israel, from each tribe a man. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing. And the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. Okay. How to wait on God. God is telling them ahead of time, this is what I'm gonna do. But before he does it, they get a lesson in how to wait on the Lord. The first thing is a sense of desperation. A driving sense from within that we are not enough. Look at verse eight. As for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. It seems to me that God is continually making a point to his people. He's driving a point down in their hearts. Just yesterday, they were staring at the problem from a distance. Now they're standing ankle deep in it. It's almost like God is teasing them, but he doesn't tease. But it's, it almost seems like he's butting them up against an insurmountable problem to make sure that they know how daunting it actually is. God doesn't always hide us from the problems that we face. Sometimes he puts a smack dab in the middle of the problems so that we can make sure that we know that there's no possible way for us to overcome the problem by ourselves. You have to keep in mind that when Israel walked up to the Jordan River, have you ever seen the Jordan River in pictures or Google Maps? I don't know. It's not like a, it's not a cute little creek, if I can say that. It is a rushing powerhouse of water. This river is on a small day between three feet and 10 feet deep. Not only is it three to 10 feet deep, but it's also 90 to 100 feet wide. Now, you might think, three feet deep, I can, I can, I can manage. Have you ever seen uh, in the past few months that some of the floods that have taken place throughout the, the nation? It's on like CNN and Fox and all of that stuff. And you see just cars being swept away, homes being dislodged. And you look at people wading through the water and it's only about two feet high. Water is really powerful. Keep in mind, on a small day, 
on the smallest place in the river, it might be three feet and it is rushing, but it's also about 100 feet wide. This is not a creek that you can just swim through. And keep in mind also that Israel isn't just like 20,000 like 20, Michael Phelps just waiting to take the promised land. So women and children and cute little donkeys and all sorts of stuff like that. Now that's on a small day. But this isn't a small day. Skip ahead to verse 15. We see this, these parentheses. It's almost like a random insert where it says... Uh, Uh, At the end of verse 15, it says, Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. Interesting little snippet that the author just chooses to throw in there. Seems arbitrary, but what he's doing is he's saying, okay, on a small day, it's about three feet, but it's not a small day. It is one of the biggest days, the harvest season, in the entire year. I want you to think, just for a moment, like just imagine the mindset of God right now, as if that were possible. That he, just the process in retrospect, that he could have just brought the people of Israel to the land of Canaan 40 years ago. And he didn't, for a lot of reasons, right? We can read about them in numbers. But even after the new gener- that old generation dies out, there's a new generation. He waits for Moses to die, waits for a new generation to come up. He, has, uh, he doesn't take them immediately into Canaan. He could have gone around the back end straight through dry ground, but he takes them around uh, a back end route to where they're facing a river. Why did he do that? Once he gets to the river, he takes uh, God's people. He has them camp out right in front of a giant, glowing, glaring problem. And before he even, does, uh, before he even takes them through the river with his miraculous, miraculous display of power, he has them stand in the water. And not only does he do all of that, but he does it during the most uh, raging part of the season in that region, where the river would have been not three to 10 feet, but more like 10 to 12 feet deep. This is an impossibility. God often does things like this, I think, to show not only his power, but our limits against the backdrop of his power. I love what Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. He would, des- he would describe our frailty and our limitations as jars of clay. Like we're, we're like jars of clay. We, we crack, we're brittle, and he would say, but we have this treasure, treasure of the knowledge of Christ in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power actually belongs to God and not to us. Is it possible that God has gone through all of this seemingly unnecessary process to break Israel down? To break down their pride and their sense of self-sufficiency? Their habitual groupthink? to get to a place where they are desperate for a move of God on their behalf. I think we might be able to say one of the ways of waiting on the Lord is for a growing sense of desperation. I cannot do this apart from God's action. You'll see in verse 13 that the miracle actually starts as they stand still in the water. It's in the midst of their desperation that God moves on their behalf. But before that ever happens, we would have to say, where our ability ends is where God's often begins. We need to hear that today, I think, maybe. 
Because it's so easy in the city of Santa Barbara to be self-deluded and to think that we can do what is needed to get us to a certain point. That we ought not be desperate, that we ought be self-sufficient. We ought to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps. We ought to just try harder, go faster, be more creative, be more communal, be more uh, so many different things. And I think the stepping into the water should at least teach us that we, are, uh, that we ought to be desperate. We ought to feel the water around us, so to speak. That if we are not yet desperate right now, it is because perhaps we have effectively closed our hearts to the pain around us in the world, to the pain in our community, to the pain in our own families, maybe even to the pain happening inside you right now, closed off to it. A dull heart. Closing ourselves off to the pain to become more self-sufficient. But when you begin to camp out, at the river of your problems and grow in a sense of awareness that truly there are some things in your life that you can't handle on your own. God starts to part the waters. Some of us need to step into the river and feel its frigid temperature and sense its rushing just so that we grow in a sense of desperation and can see God's power displayed on our behalf. Now there are some things in your life that you are talented enough to fix on your own. I'm not saying don't practice, don't, don't exert any effort on anything ever. You have giftings, you have a career perhaps, you have a certain skill set, you're good at things, and there are a lot of problems that perhaps you can and are solving right now, and you should. Perhaps you're really good at it. It's not to say that we shouldn't do anything, but to say, hey, there are also other things in my life that are too insurmountable. There are rushing rivers in front of me that I cannot move by the human imagination and I certainly can't fix. There are things in my life that require a mighty, powerful move of God's spirit. And what would happen if God's people in Santa Barbara began to hunger once again for a mighty move of God's spirit? To begin to read the examples of God moving mountains, stopping the sun in its tracks, thwarting enemies, destroying the works of the devil, healing the sick, raising the dead. And that's possible in our lifetime but is it also possible that we are so self-sufficient that we have no need of his examples of power? I think it has to start with a sense of holy desperation. We must step ankle deep into the problems and face them for what they are. But it's not just desperation. We'd also have to say on the other side of that coin is a sense of expectancy. Not just broken, hopeless, despairing desperation, but expectancy that the God that I so desperately need right now is going to show up. Verse seven, the Lord said to Joshua, today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel 
that they may know that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. This is awesome. God is basically explaining why he's dragging them through the wilderness right now. Here's why we didn't take, you know, the easier route. <laughs> Wanted to take you by this river. Here's why you're camping out for three days looking at something that is insurmountable. Here's uh, why I want you to kind of wade in the kiddie pool of this destructive river. And here's why I'm going to part the sea. So that you will know that what I have been saying all of this time is actually true. And I keep my word. God is almost giving us a trailer, like a movie trailer, of what he is about to do. Stirring in us an expectancy that he might even do more. It seems that he's been planning this whole scene to build up a sense of faith and expectancy in his people so that they would be willing and trusting to move into deeper waters. That's the effect of a rightly shared testimony, right? When someone steps up and they speak of what God has done in their life and you're hearing it and you're like, oh yeah, yeah, I kind of read that in the Bible or I knew that intuitively or I heard that from like Sunday school or something like back in my past, but like that actually happens? Whoa. Whoa. That's the effect of a rightly given prophetic word. If a testimony is what God has done in the past, the prophetic word is what God wants to do right now or later. And so you have God speaking through his people things, just like he did with Joshua, so he does today, speaking to his people collectively. Here's what I have done. Here's what I want to do now, and here's what I'm going to do. Why? to stir up a sense of expectancy in his people. The very ones who are desperate enough for a move of God to say, I believe that you can move mountains in my life. At uh, our church, uh, a lot of people in our church are taking uh, the class perspectives on Tuesday night. There are a couple a couple weeks ago, we had this guy come to share. I think his name's Marcus. I don't know his last name because he was a doctor, so we just called him doctor. And he's a doctor from Ethiopia who also has a ministry uh, laying hands, ministering to, to the poor, to the poorest people. And he basically just told stories about miracles. And they were very casual. He was like, yeah, this one day I, I met this doctor... I think it was another doctor who was an avid Muslim. And he converted to Christ overnight. And I remember talking to him. And I was like, Why, how, what happened? What did you, why did you, how did you convert? Like, what, what was the thing that happened? The guy went on, the doctor went on to share a story about a girl who had died. And a bunch of people, like she's dead. He's a doctor, like vitals. He's there checking and the church began to lay hands on her and the warmth began to be restored to her body right before his eyes. And she rose from the, she rose from the dead. And this doctor was telling us these stories and we're all like taking perspectives and we're like, oh my gosh, it's amazing. And then he, he threw out this question. He was like, how come stuff like this doesn't happen in America as frequently as it does in places like China and Africa and Latin America? Um, and by the way, I think, I think they do. If you are a part of a group of people that expects that type of thing, you tend to see that type of thing. But I also think that it happens way more frequently in places like Africa. And you, that was the question he was asking. 
He never answered his own question, um, but he, he went on to, sit, uh, to, tell this, to tell that story and to say, you know, like, it's so funny talking to Americans, like, gosh, I wish that could happen here. Like, oh, yeah. But in Africa, like, this is just a thing. Like, that's just like paying your electrical bill. Like, people are raised from the dead. It's like nothing. That's like a normal Christian thing. Like, you're a Christian, you see demons being cast out, you see people rising from the dead, you see uh, the sick being made well. Like, that's a nor- like, that doesn't happen? Like, kind of weir- like weird. Over here, it's the opposite. I pray that there would be a sense of expectation stirred up in this church today. That the same God who raises people from the dead, who heals the sick, who casts out stinking demons, could do that in your life too. But there's a sense of expectancy. I am doing all of this, God seems to be saying, that they may know that what I said is actually gonna happen. Just doing it for your sake. The third thing is devotion. Now, it's not enough to be desperate for God and to be expectant on God because that's still in your mind. Those are just thought processes. To be able to get to a place, it's it's good, it's just not enough to get to the place where you're like, oh yes, I definitely need God and I believe that he can do awesome things because you could still at that point just go on and live the rest of your life the way that you want to live it. There must at a certain point be a sense in you that I am devoting my heart, soul, mind, and body to the very one that I am desperate and expectant for. This is a complete shift in the way that you live your life. This is not a faith that kind of resides in the mind. It is a faith that, that, uh, that, that peers through the rest of your body. It is the people of Israel and the people of God today saying, yes, I am desperate for a move of God. No, I can't do what needs to be done in my own life uh, for that breakthrough. Yes, I believe that God is powerful enough to move mountains and I am going to jump into the river because of that belief. And I will rearrange all of the furniture in my life in order for him to have his way. Getting this from verse five. Joshua said to the people, consecrate yourselves. Because tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. That word wonders is the closest word in the Old Testament to the word in the New Testament for miracles. God will do wonders. Tomorrow, God will do wonders among you. Not talking to Israel anymore, talking to you. Tomorrow, God will do wonders among you. Tomorrow, God will do miracles among you. Tomorrow, God will blow your mind. First, consecrate yourself. What does it mean to consecrate yourself? This comes from Exodus, where the people of God, being in the presence of God, would have to do a, a lot of strange things to our, our, our minds. Use certain utensils and not mix fabric, you know, and not eat shrimp and all of that stuff. It comes out of Exodus and the book of Le- Leviticus, and it seems arbitrary and weird to us today, but if you look at Leviticus as a whole, it was just this pattern this thought pattern, a way of thinking. God was drilling into a certain body of people at a certain time to think in a certain way. There is the clean and there is the unclean. There's that which is holy and that which is not holy and I want you to be holy. That was all Leviticus was 
impressing upon their hearts. Now today, we can, you know, you can mix polyester with cotton all day long, you can eat shrimp cocktails to your heart's desire. The principle underlying it is the same. Holiness. Being consecrated. Or we might say be completely devoted in your heart, in your mind, in your body, in your social circles to the Lord. Uh, One author writing on this said, the core idea behind consecration is that of separation from things that are unclean or common. That is, anything that would contaminate one's relationship with the perfect God, okay? I think we have to face this because maybe for some of us, we want it both ways. We want the power of God, but we don't want the holiness of God. And it doesn't work that way. We want the blessings of knowing God, but we also want uh, the pleasure of, of messing around with our sin. And, you know, for you, it could be anything. I don't know what it is. Maybe you're sleeping around. Maybe you have a promiscuous lifestyle. Maybe it's not promiscuous at all. Maybe you're just sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend. You know it's wrong, but at the end of the day, you're like, is this really damaging anybody? Like, what does God care about what I do in the privacy of my bedroom? God is saying, this actually matters. Because I don't just want your lip service. I don't just want your ambition. I, just don't, I, I don't just want your cognitive abilities. I want your body. I want your soul. I want your mind. I want your strength. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. I want it all. Because if I could have it all, I could do a lot of things. We could do a lot of things. God seems to move mightily on behalf of those who fear him and pursue him wholeheartedly. Not compartmentalizing their life, like, oh, you know, you can have this part of me, but my relationships, that's for me. You can have my relationships, um, but you can't have, like, my pain and my grief. You can have that, but you can't have my money. You can have my money, but you can't have uh, uh, my five-year plan. God's saying to you, I want it all. Paul would say to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 21, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. See, this isn't God attempting to be this mean, grumpy grandpa. He's like, I don't want you to enjoy that, and I don't want you to have that, and you know what, you can't do this, you can't do anything. Yeah. <laughs> sit in the corner and say your prayers everything that God says to us is not arbitrary but comes out of a deep reservoir of love and omnip- omniscience and all knowing when he says I don't want you to mess around with that he knows that in the end it's going to be destructive And so God desires not just for a bunch of talking heads to profess faith in Christ, but for a bunch of people to be conformed to Christ. Because in God's mind, that is the best way to live. 
And he knows that there's things in your life right now that are destroying you. And you might not even know it right now, but God does, and he's speaking to you before it's too late. I want all of you. Desperation, expectancy, and single-minded devotion. This seems to be, at least in this instance, a picture of what it looks like to wait, wait on God. It doesn't mean to not do anything. It means to be just desperate enough, to be expectant, and to jump in completely devoted. The question that arises now is what happens when we wait? What, what would happen if you actually did this? And I want to read the last portion of this, this text. Um, it says in verse 14 through 17, so when the priests set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the Ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the Ark were dipped in the brink of the water, now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of the harvest, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away. At Adam, the city that is beside Zerathon, and those flowing down towards the Sea of Arabah, the Salt Sea, uh, that's the Dead Sea, were completely cut off. So water gets cut off. Other bodies of water start to stand up in pillars, just hanging out, just chilling. Now the priests bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. And all of Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. What happens when we wait? Well, God rearranges geography. <laughs> he rearranges problems. He brings victory and transformation. He thwarts the work of the devil and he builds up his people. And he does it in ways that display his power. You have to... The verse in its simplicity, like it's just, just so casually how the author wrote it. And the water stood up in a heap and they walked through. Yeah. Like you have to be there. <laughs> you have to get there and imagine what that would have been like. Imagine walking to the ocean just between here and the Channel Islands and you're walking up to the water and the water begins to stir. It grows tumultuous and all of a sudden it begins to part. And the water, where does it go? It doesn't just disappear or disintegrate. It begins to rise in pillars the size of perhaps skyscrapers. And it doesn't look like an ice block as it rises up. It's still churning with all of the power of countless metric tons of sheer water. And it's just staying there. It's churning and flowing, but it's not going anywhere in particular. It's not going down a river. It is just churning within itself. And you, you could imagine walking by the pillar and just countless tons of water churning. It must be stirring up a breeze. And you're walking through these pillars and it's cold, but you're walking on dry ground. And these giant bodies of water are just standing there in heaps. Imagine you're a 10-year-old Israelite boy. You'll never forget the power of God after that. It says they stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan. 
in the midst of an insurmountable object, God raises them up. The prophet Isaiah would say later, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. This is now metaphorical for what you're going through, right? When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. God seems to show off his strength most vividly in the midst of our problems so that we will see and believe in his furious love for his people, that he has a purpose for them. And he doesn't just save his people from insurmountable objects, but just like last week when we looked at Rahab, he didn't just save a prostitute from her, uh, for her, from her situation and just set her in the corner to not break anything. He actually dignified her and gave her a purpose and gave her a legacy. And he does the same thing here, except not just with one person, but a whole body of people. This is the first time in verse 17 that Israel is referred to as a nation instead of just a people. Now, all throughout the first few books of the Bible, God promises that they will be a nation, but he never calls them a nation up until this point. He always calls them a people. They're just a rambling people. This is the first time he calls them a nation. They have an identity, a corporate identity. They have a place. They have a God. They are going into a land. God's promises are actually coming to pass. As Joshua would say at the close of this book in chapter 21, verse 45, not one word of all the good promises that the Lord has made the house of Israel has failed. All of them have come to pass. And all of his promises to you will come to pass as well. Perhaps some of you are asking right now, you know, I, I don't doubt that one bit. God does what he does and he doesn't lie. But if all of his promises come true, why does he always make us wait? What's the purpose of the waiting? The waiting period. It's taking too much time, Dad. And I think from stories like this, we would have to say, because there's, there seems to be so much gold found in the waiting, not merely the outcome. Not just stories like this, but I, I think of stories like Moses, who is on Mount Sinai getting the, the Ten Commandments, right? And it says, uh, it says in Exodus 24, the Lord said to Moses, come to the mountain, wait for me there, that I may give you the, the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments that I have written for your instruction. So Moses went with his assistant, went to the mountain, camped out. This could have been done in a few minutes. God could have just scribbled his Ten Commandments on a couple rocks, gave them to Moses. This is something that ends up taking a month says in verse 15 that Moses went up on the mountain and a cloud covered the mountain. And the glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it for six days. And then on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. More waiting. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. And Moses entered the cloud and went onto the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. And then he got his Ten Commandments. We see this all throughout the Bible. God could easily give you the outcome that you need and that he wants to give you, but he often makes us wait. And we live in, a, in an instant culture where we are used to get 
getting everything that we want instantaneously and right away. And you can't underestimate how deeply that type of thing forms us to process other experiences. When we're used to getting things immediately, and if someone doesn't get us something immediately, they're, you know, they're fired or we hire another company that can do it faster. So deeply does that form us that we get to a place perhaps where we don't get something fast enough, we start to question whether it's defective or not. Perhaps you're waiting on God for something. You're doing the same thing. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe he's angry at me. Or you're in prayer. Nothing happens for the first, you know, five seconds. And you're like, oh, well, this doesn't work. You read the Bible. You open up to Lamentations. And you're like, oh, okay, this is so happy. <laughs> God, I've been reading the Bible for 10 seconds. Where are you? We have formed and trained ourselves to think that the best things in life happen right away, and they don't. Not only that, but it's a, it's a habit deeply ingrained within us. And waiting itself is another type of habit that God uses to transform us in our anxiety, in our insecurity, and in our fear, where he instills in us a sense of desperation and expectancy and devotion and trust and faith that are cultivated deeply within us in the midst of fiery trials, not apart from them. In the midst of cold, rushing rivers, not outside of them. In the middle of insurmountable problems, not apart from them. And it's not that waiting changes our circumstances. You can wait all day on God, and your waiting in itself has no supernatural power. Waiting doesn't change your circumstances. Waiting often changes you. Because the reward, if we were to look at Joshua chapter 3, at face value, the reward seems to be in the waiting itself. Because God is in the waiting. Some of you are in the midst of a situation in life and maybe you need a breakthrough. And ask the worship team to come up this morning as we transition. Maybe some of you feel like, gosh, I just can't get a break. Every corner I turn, life kicks me down. And God, where are you? Others, maybe spent the last few years chasing green pastures. The other side of the fence where it's greener on the other side, only to come up short every time. But whatever it is, you could describe yourself as waiting. You're asking God, what good can come out of this? Where are you, Lord? When are you gonna give me my results? When are you gonna give me my promised land? When are you gonna, when are you gonna give me an outpouring of your, your power and a display of your, your power? What I wanna do for the rest of this morning as we sing and meditate and dwell is to change the questions that we're asking God. So right now some of you are like, God, where are you? When are you gonna do something about this? And I think God is saying to a lot of you, I am. I have you camped out and I wanna make eye contact with you. So whatever it is that you're going through right now, you would describe yourself as being put through a waiting process. You're waiting for something. You're waiting for a big breakthrough. You're waiting for a big opportunity. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. Why don't you begin to ask for the rest of this morning, what, God, 
What are you trying to show me in the waiting? In what ways are you encountering me in this waiting process? I think you might be surprised by what you find. He'll part the river. Always does. But right now he wants your undivided attention. And perhaps to stir some other things beneath the surface. Seems to do that in the waiting period. Not in the success and prosperity. Most often. So perhaps you're in that moment. I'd start asking that question this morning. God, what are you trying to do? What do you want to say? And I leave you with this. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 31 which says, but they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. God is in the waiting. Let's ask him, what he's attempting to say to us right now as we sing.